You're listening to the Brookside Church Sermon Podcast. We're a progressive and inclusive community of faith in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, reminding everyone that they are the beloved child of God. For more information, visit us online at brooksidechurch.org. And now reading from Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 29. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, Please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house to spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the men, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they replied, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien, and he would play the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they were unable to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people have become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, and who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you will be consumed in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and left him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, they said, Flee for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the hills or else you will be consumed. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, your servant has found favor with you, and he has shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot flee to the hills, for fear the disaster will overtake me and I die. Look, that city is near enough to flee too, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, Very well, 
I grant you this favor too, and will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. All right. Watching your faces. <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting to, to be in a congregation where most of you, if you, if you know the story, you get some of the parts of the passages and <laughs> you shiver. It was, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that's in there. Uh, before we start, um, can I just get you, uh, let's just, just, everybody take a deep breath. Exhale. I want to ask you to do something. I did this in the congregation before, um, and uh, at the end they said, okay, now we've all become pagans. Well, if, if that's a problem for you, then that's fine. But I, I'd like you to join your hands if you're willing. Uh, turn uh, to the folks next to you, and I want you to teach you a word. You may know this, and say namaste. Namaste. Turn to your neighbor and look at them and say namaste. Namaste. All right, so turn to your other ones and say namaste. I promise you're not going to help with this. Um, I, I lived for a little while in India, and this is the general greeting. Um, and so namaste said, means uh, that the, the image of God in me greets the image of God. So um, I wanted to start that way just because I, I wanted to give us a sense of, uh, you know, move around a little bit. I know it's warm in here, right? But we're going to try to make a space where we can center ourselves in the moment and realize why we're here. And I'm going to ask you a really important question. If God showed up here in our midst, what would we do? How would God be treated? And the most honest answer would be, well, it depends. Right? It depends on our ability to discern God's presence, for one. And if we knew and we recognized the presence of God, then perhaps we would respond accordingly. But I think probably most of you would agree with me. Our major problem, our human condition, is that we have no idea when God's presence is here. And so we don't really always know what to do about it. So let's ask ourselves the same question, but let's ask it differently. For this community, who might be a person of such high esteem that we would fall over ourselves in order to show them hospitality? Who might be such a person? Maybe a celebrity, a famous movie star, a musician, a politician. Of course, I wouldn't dare say the president. But I might say Obama. When you think about it, who might be the person for this community who, if they walked in the door, we would immediately realize something awesome has happened. I can imagine when this person enters the room, that we would be overcome with a palpable sense of awe. There would be, and I've been in situations where this has happened, likely there would be an uncomfortable silence, maybe some awkward whispers until everyone was aware of the gravity of the moment. Look, look who just showed up. There would likely be um, 
changing in posture. Maybe we would shift our collars, right? Maybe we would check our makeup and put in a fresh stick of gum. That's probably what I would do. Some of us would do all we could to find ourselves next to them. Others of us would shy away. Then we would offer this person and everyone that comes with them our finest seats, a place of highest honor. Here, come sit. Sit here in the front row, right? If this was a person that I hold in high esteem, I might even, and I'm imagining the highest esteem, I might even go up to that person and say, would you like to say something? Right? Then, after the service, we would probably all scramble to get our finest dishes. Maybe some folks would run home and get their finest foods and then bring them so that we could show this person a good time with our presence, right? We would want to see this person when we're all done, that they leave on the best, with the best idea of us, that they leave on good terms, and that wherever they're going, they're getting there, right? Because they, we've supported them. So I can imagine that some of us might say, do you need a ride to the train station or to the airport? Or maybe we might even say, would you like to come and stay at my place tonight? Right? We would give them the best that we have. Am I far off or does this sound about right? Yeah? So the problem is, and this is the problem I think we all share, we have such a distorted understanding of God that we constantly fail to recognize and respond when God is actually present. Indeed, the teachings of Jesus remind us that God is present exactly in the places where people least expect. And if we get it right, at least according to Jesus and Jesus' teaching, remember Matthew 25, we'll hear the divine voice say to us, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me hospitality radical hospitality for some reason most of us only offer radical hospitality to someone that we all sort of know and recognize as someone highly esteemed by the community but we fail to offer radical hospitality to each other much less those who Jesus here has identified with as we spoke about last Sunday I believe each and every one of us or every person in this room is someone who bears the image of God. Even more than that, I believe that you are not just bearers of the image of God, you are actually bearers of God. That the Spirit of God resides in each one of you. You're individuals with sacred worth. You are the beloved children of God. You are created in God's image. And your existence is evidence of the divine love that brought all creation into being. That's what you are. We have a tendency, though, don't we, to find reasons to justify treating each other as less than human, much less sacred bearers of the image of God. That's why I like beginning by looking at each other and saying namaste. Our first moment is to say, I see what you might be asking then is what in the world does this have to do with homosexuality? What does this have to do with the story of Sodom, with the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? So we all know sin, Sodom is a famous story. The story of Sodom is a famous story for being mentioned throughout the Bible as an example, as an example of the most wicked city. But I want to ask you, 
What was Sodom's wickedness? What was it that they did or failed to do that gained them such a reputation? And they are. Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned all throughout the Bible as the prime example of the most wicked city, the wickedest of what communities can look like. What was it they did? I imagine many of you, because you've been shaped in a culture that doesn't read the Bible, right, but talks about it a lot, you might think that Sodom and Gomorrah, that Sodom is related to sodomy, which has something to do with homosexuality. But those who say that are people who have not read the story. So the answer in short, I think, is that what the city is an example of, it's, it's an example of excess, a city that's filled with excess and resources, but refused to care for those in need and refused to offer hospitality to strangers. And if you were to read Genesis 18 and Genesis 19, you would see that. You get the story of these two angels that come and visit Abraham, and Abraham treats them one way, and they come and visit Lot in the city of Sodom, and they're treated completely differently. And Lot, in the midst of Sodom, treats them a specific way. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We just read the story, but my guess is many of you have had that story so shaped in your mind that even when you're listening to it, you're imagining something is going to, it's going to say something about homosexuality. But it doesn't. Certainly sexual violence is part of the story, and we saw that as, as I saw some of you moving in your seats when Lot was, uh, his attitude towards his daughters, right? But certainly sexual violence is part of the story. But we should ask ourselves the most fundamental question. If this story has any redeeming elements in it, what message is it intending to portray? What is, why is this story important enough to have been passed on from generation to so, so generation that it ended up in our books and then became so central to the Hebrew story that they continually referred to it? What was the value in it? What values does it support? If we read it faithfully, what kind of community does a story like this shape? Well, one way to answer this question is to look through the rest of the Bible and see how the prophets understood it. How did the Bible interpret this story? So Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned twice in Deuteronomy. So I'm going to go through, not all of them, but a few of them. They're mentioned twice in Deuteronomy. And the cities are destroyed for being, quote, like Egypt. Egypt is the place in the culture where Israel had been rescued from in slavery. right? So their sin was that they were like Egypt. Well, what does that mean? Well, the prophet Isaiah regularly refers to Israel in comparison to Sodom for being proud of its sin. What was its sin? Isaiah 3 says, it, Their sin consisted of crushing my people by grinding the face of the poor. Their sin was grinding the face of the poor. They were proud of it, even. Isaiah compares Israel to Sodom to remind them of Sodom's fate. In other words, Isaiah saw Sodom as a city that oppressed the poor and was proud of it. And for that reason, God destroyed them. Hmm. Jeremiah uses the story of Sodom to condemn false prophets. They condemned false, he condemned false prophets because they lied to support the greed of those in power. This is what Jeremiah says. They strengthened the hands of the evildoers. So Jeremiah says that the sin of Sodom was that they were like the prophets because the prophets lied to support those in power. Okay, so that's Isaiah and Jeremiah. 
They didn't really give us a full interpretation. They just used Sodom in comparison. Ezekiel, on the other one, on the other hand, is one who gives us a full interpretation. Ezekiel says, Now this was the sin. I'm reading straight from Ezekiel here. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. It's interesting that Sodom is a sister. This is the sin of your system Sodom, sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy, consistent with what we've already heard, right? They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So in other words, Sodom's sin was pride and excess while the poor around them suffered. Interesting. Nothing about homosexuality. In the New Testament, let's move to the New Testament and see what it says. Jesus refers to Sodom and Gomorrah as examples of sin of refusing to extend hospitality to strangers. Jesus declares to his disciples that the cities that are inhospitable to them are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He sends his disciples off and they're supposed to go into the town and if the towns do not accept them, they're supposed to do what? Shake the dust off their feet. For those towns will be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because of their lack of hospitality. Or perhaps you remember, and it doesn't mention Sodom specifically, but if you read it, you know the passage and what it's referring to. The book, from, the book of Hebrews, there's a passage you may have memorized at some point. Do not neglect to show hospitality of strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember that passage? Do not fail to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Hebrews is quoting, right, or alluding to the story of Sodom by encouraging people to become a place of hospitality because when you show hospitality, you may actually be entertaining God. Of course, there's no getting around the fact that there's sexual violence mentioned in the story. Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 is set in a particular context, right, with its own history. This is, though, on two levels there's sexual violence. First, the first level of sexual violence is that the city crowd is seeking to exert dominance and power over the guests, right? You remember that part in the story. They all gather around the house and they say, get those strangers and get them out here. But if I'm right, when you think about that, does that have anything at all to do with loving relationships of mutual care by two people who are of the same gender? Absolutely not. It has everything to do with domination, right? It's sexual violence not because it's about a male-on-male violence. It would have been the same if it were females. In fact, actually, we see that right here in the story. It has nothing to do with homosexual relationships. But even then, according to the prophets, when the story of Sodom and Gomorrah recounted, their sin was not thought of as a result of a man wanting to have sex with other men. If that were the case, then when the prophets referred to it, they would have mentioned it. But they didn't. Their sin was having more than enough resources, but being unwilling to open their doors to those in need. Their sin was a lack of hospitality. I know that there's more sexual violence in the story done to the daughters, and I'll get there in a minute. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 is one of those passages I refer to as a clobber passage. 
That's because of the way that it's been used to justify violence and exclusion towards homosexuals. So my invitation to you this morning, after having looked at what the Bible says, my invitation to you is that we can see past the violent misreading and come to see for what it can be. An invitation to become a community that witnesses to the radical hospitality of God. So there's a passage, uh, a pastor, his name is Colby Martin. He's the pastor at Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego. And he just wrote a book called Unclobber. Exclamation point. So exclamation point's part of the time. Unclobber. And so he goes through each of the clobber passages just like I'm doing in this series. And, and he has a whole chapter on the book, of, uh, on the story from Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he, in his, it, it, this, what I'm getting ready to say comes from him, though it's not in his book. What he does is he's gone through the whole reading of Sodom and Gomorrah and the scholars, and he's tried to frame it in a way to teach his church what the story might have, what redeeming qualities this story might have to help them become a radically inclusive community. So I'm going to share with you what he said. He lists four stages or levels. I've ad adapted them a little bit, and I've added one, so now you get five. So five stages or levels of, in, of hospitality. Now, I want to offer them to you as an invitation, but I would like you to see them as both as chronologically, chronological stages, go through stage one to stage two, but also as le levels of accomplishment, levels of mastery. Meaning, if you are the most radically hospi hospitable community, you would be stage five. But if you're the least, you're stage one, but that's not meant to shame you, just meant to help you see these are the areas where we need to work. And it doesn't just necessarily characterize you as a person. It characterizes your relationship to people. So there may be people that you can be radically hospitable to at stage five with. And there may be people that you are only in stage one relationship with. Does that, does that make sense? All right. So thinking of this, these stages in relationship to us, our goal should be to be so radically hospitable that we're capable of practicing all five levels of hospitality with every human being we encounter, especially those who are generally marginalized, excluded, and especially those historically excluded from the church. Five levels. So here they are. I'm going to read them to you real quick. Stage one, we honor them. Stage two, we welcome them. Stage three, we provide for them. Stage four, we protect them. And stage five, we empower them. Honor, welcome Provide, protect, and empower. I'm going to read through this just for you real quick. By the way, I have these in handouts. You're welcome to take right? So I've made these in every sermon that we've done so far. Honor them. This is where you look at them and you say, Namaste, I see you. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, when Lot encounters the strangers, entertaining angels unaware, right? He bowed down to them and he dressed them as my lords. See, honor and dignity is the first stage of hospitality. Honor is that stage of hospitality where we're willing to look at, into the eyes of another, even those we might call our enemies, and acknowledge their inherent worth. We see them as bearers of the image of God. We treat them as we would treat God. And this is the truth at the heart of that Hindu greeting. I see you. The image of God in me greets the image of God in you. Stage one. Stage two, we welcome them. This is where you say, come and stay at my home. Come and make my place your place. See, the next thing that Lot did when he saw the strangers, 
is that he offered them to come into his home. And this is the level of hospitality where we say to the other that our space is their space. We treat them as those who belong with us. We're willing to say to them, until you prove yourself otherwise, you are welcome in my life. Stage three, we provide for them. This is where we say, I will use what I have to care for your lack. See, the next thing that Lot did was offer to fix his guests unleavened bread. I don't know what's special about unleavened bread, but it must have been pretty important. He provided for their physical needs. He gave to them what they needed to be made whole again. For us, that includes caring for more than just their physical needs. We have to be willing to care for their spiritual and emotional needs as well. See, this is the stage where we're willing to take inventory of our resources and to take their needs upon us ourselves. This is the stage where we say, I have something that can be of value and benefit to your life. I'm going to provide them for you. This is the stage where we do all that we can to remind them that they are the beloved children of God. We're treating them like they're celebrities. Why? Because they're bearers of the image of God. Stage four, we protect them. This is where we say, I will offer the very best of what I have in order to keep you safe. So this is the part of the, part of the story really complicated. This is where the crowd gathers around the house and they aim to do violence against the guests. But Lot intervenes. He does so because he, by offering to sacrifice his two virgin daughters who are engaged to be married. Wow, if you want to talk about violence, here it is. Certainly those who read this passage literally wouldn't condone such a thing, I don't think. Though I wouldn't give some of them a chance. This is one of those passages that I think if, if I could, I would just erase, right? Even more, I wish there was commentary on it, but there's, there's not. There's no fuller explanation, right? There's no kind of footnotes. It's just there. Still, if we remember that women are treated as property, and we can get over that, which I don't think we should, but if we are trying to understand what this story has for us today, then I think that the least that this part of the story can do is offer us an image of what radical hospitality is. Lot is willing to offer the very best of what he has to protect his guests. See, this is when radical hospitality says, your safety and my safety are now joined together. In order to keep you safe, I will offer even the best of what I have to maintain your well-being. Now, that does not exclude, excuse the violent reading of the passage. But if you look at the story and what Lot did, you can see that's what he's doing. That's stage four, protect them. Stage five, empower them. This is where you look at them and you say, I will work to better your future. This final stage of radical hospitality is important. When Lot welcomes them, he states to them that his goal is to care for them so that they can, quote, rise early and go on their way. At this stage, we're willing to offer radical hospitality to them, even if its only purpose is so that them, those who come, are able to continue on their journey empowered and encouraged. For most churches, especially those in evangelical cultures, we don't like this one very much because we want people to come back. And we almost feel like we should only care for them if they're going to come back. This stage of radical hospitality says no. 
When they leave, we want them to feel better about themselves for having been in our midst. They leave better than they came. They leave filled with peace and hope and love. This is the stage where we're able to say to them, your well-being is one of my life's highest priorities. I wonder how many of us, when we see a stranger walk in the room, would greet them and say, Namaste, the God in me honors the God in you, and would treat them with such high esteem that when we left, when they left, we would be able to say, Your well-being is one of my life's highest priorities. I'm not there with most people. I would say generally as a congregation, we're not there with most people. Not even with most of the people in the room here. But I think that's the goal, is to get to being the kind of community where we can look at each other and say, the God image in me honors the God image in you, and your well-being is one of my life's highest priorities. I believe that each and every one of the people in this room are bearers of the image of God. The Spirit of God resides in each of you. And that's why it's so important to hear the words of Jesus in Genesis, Matthew 25. Because, see, it's not that you wait, right? You don't wait until someone is naked or thirsty or hungry or sick or in prison before we decide to care for them. If you read that from Jesus, then you miss the whole point, which is that they should have never been that way to begin with. See, the story of Sodom really, for me, is a reminder to us of the alternatives between radical hospitality and the violence of green and exclusivity. I didn't know before I wrote this that inhospitality was a word. There's the comparison between radical hospitality and radical inhospitality. I pray that we're able to be a community that at least begins the journey towards becoming a radically inclusive community. Can we be, this is my invitation to you today, can we be a place where those who enter the room are immediately reminded of the dignity of their humanity, reminded that they are the beloved children of God, reminded that they are made in God's image? Can we be a place that offers them our finest seats, especially those that we think don't deserve? Can we be a place where our finest dishes are prepared and our finest foods are stored and ready? that we can offer our best selves to them for their safety. Finally, I hope that we can become a community that even people who visit us for just a short time can walk away feeling that they are more human for having been in our midst. That they're encouraged and empowered for the next stage on their journey. That we don't care for them just because we want to get something from them. So here's my invitation. Let's recognize God in our midst, in the face of those around us, especially those who come looking for a place of rest and refuge, recovery and restoration. Let's be a truly inclusive community, one that welcomes especially those who have been excluded by affirming them as bearers of the image of God. Let us be a place of radical hospitality where the image of God is always Always welcome. Amen. Namaste. So as we move into our communion service, I'm going to just ask if maybe this unleavened bread 
to us can represent sort of the the uh, offering that Lot offered to his stranger guests, entertaining angels unaware. That as you come to the table, you're receiving this offering from the rest of the community, reminding you that you are valued so much that this is an offering that we're offering to God and you are the bearer of the image of God that receiving that offering. But I also pray that you'll see this table as an offering that you're offering to each other. That you would recognize this table as a space where you're saying to each one in this room, this is a gift that I have given to you because you are God to me. You are a bearer of the image of God to me. For me, that's what communion looks like. Radical communion is a symbol of radical hospitality. So before we do, uh, you know, normally the first stage in the communion, communion service is a stage where we say the table is open to all. I was a little bit more inten uh, intentional this week, and so I asked if we could do this as a community rather than just me. And usually we sing it, right? I've, I tried to have us sing it. Uh, but today I'm going to ask, uh, I've got some people who've agreed to read a little piece. So uh, with us, if we can, we'll go ahead and begin our reading. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. God, God has revealed to us that diversity in gender and sexuality are gifts to be celebrated. Everyone is welcome. No matter the amount of money they make, size of their house or the size of their bank accounts. No matter their political leaning or their religious beliefs or even their unbelief. No matter where they are from, what language they speak, or the color of their skin. No matter their sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. Regardless of their mental or physical abilities or disabilities. Everyone. While some would restrict us from the table of the Lord. From church membership. From church leadership. From ordination. From professional ministry positions. From jobs. From marriage. Because of their restricted view of the Bible. Their restricted view of truth. And their restricted view of reality. We welcome all to the table of the Lord. Say to all who are excluded by others, no matter who you are, or where you are on life's journey, be excluded no more. We are stretching out our hands to those who have been stereotyped, stigmatized, labeled, and assigned to the margins of church and society, saying, In the name of Jesus, partake of the body and blood of our Lord. Join our churches. Be our your jobs. Marry your life partners. Because we are all God's beloved children. 